0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 6, 2009. I am excited about this edition of Fighting for the Faith. Hour number two. Good stuff. I'll tell you about it in just a minute. Oh, All right, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Roseborough. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically and to help you to think critically and compare what people are saying out there in the name of God In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of religion and spirituality and whatever the in vogue thing is that they call it nowadays, enlightenment or what have you, and compare it to the clear teachings of the word of God. Why? Well, because God's word is true. Well, how do you know it's true, Chris? I mean, you could be wrong, right? Well, I could be wrong, but the thing is it's not really based on my opinion. It's based upon Jesus' opinion. And Jesus, who happened to be God in human flesh, uh, proved his credentials when it came to the word of God by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And uh, Jesus, let's just say that he didn't suffer from a liberal, higher critical view of scriptures. In other words, you can trust Jesus' opinion of scripture because he is trustworthy. He is true. He is God in human flesh, and he came and died on the cross for you. All right, we got a good program lined up today. Cannot wait till hour number two. Now, hour number two, we're going to uh, dive into a an interview that I conducted earlier today. It's in Memorex uh, with uh, Bob DeWay. This is uh, one, uh, interview number one of two interviews that I'm going to be doing with Bob DeWay on his brand new book, The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. In fact, by the end of the program today, we should have a link up at piratechristianradio.com so that you can purchase a copy of this book, because it is fantastic. Literally the best book I've seen out there on the emergent church. Bob does something that nobody else has been able to do, and that is, is that he's able to pierce the Klingon cloaking device that has been obscuring and hiding the emergent church and what it is they believe, think and confess. And uh and for the first time ever after reading this book, I feel like I actually get it, got it, and am looking forward to uh loading my photon torpedoes and launching <laughs> Well, maybe maybe like I'm, I'm a pirate. Maybe uh loading the cannons up with uh, all kinds of cannonballs and shot and you know grape shot and things like that and just letting loose with the theological broadside on the emergent church because uh, Bob bombed book really does that so today you're now the funny thing is is that i don't conduct interviews the way other people conduct interviews all right um in fact, think of the interview as more like you get to listen in on a phone conversation that I'm having with Bob on the topic, <laughs> and we know you're listening in. That's kind of the way, the best way to describe it. But man, uh, so today and tomorrow we'll be doing a interview. We'll be playing interviews that uh, I've done with uh, Bob on on his book, and just can't wait to get to it. It's good stuff. Um, we got e- listener email today. We've got. <laughs> Hey, you know that uh, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, Ground Zero for the Toronto blessing. The remember that the uh, the laughing revival and all that crazy stuff that went on. Well, that's it's now going on again, still with the new Mystic crowds. But uh, anyway, they've uh, they, they've got a bargain price for if you want to get the deliverance and inner healing from them. We'll talk about that today. The uh, United Methodist Church uh, spending a lot of money on an advertising campaign. Trying to convince us that the word church is a verb and not a noun, so we'll be getting to that today, and then uh, talking about clergy who are lobbying uh, Congress uh, for gay rights. Yes, you heard that right. There, uh, there are literally um, uh, clergymen lobbying Congress in order to, uh, you know, in defense of gay rights. We'll be continuing in Exodus uh, chapter six and seven. Actually, I will also be reading. Uh, a segment from a devotional piece from a couple of days ago from the Treasury of Daily Prayer. Literally, uh, th- the more I use this Treasury of Daily Prayer, the I mean, the more impressed I am with what Concordia Publishing House has uh, put together. Here is probably one of the most comprehensive, greatest Christ-centered uh, doctrinal, meditational, theological uh, daily. Uh, devotional books I've ever, ever encountered. And so I'm going to read something from that from uh, from a couple of days ago because it's so good, and then we'll do our interview with Bob DeWay. Oh, I also forgot to mention, we'll be talking about the Chase the Lion Manifesto. Yeah, we'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. All right, so without any further ado, grab yourself a beverage. Kick up your heels if you can. If you're not listening to this podcast at work, or if you're not listening uh, in in your car commuting into work, make yourself comfortable. Go get your fuzzy bunny slippers and put them on. Just there's nothing better than listening to Fighting for the Faith with fuzzy bunny slippers on. Believe me, I, I've tried it. It's very therapeutic, and uh, <laughs> and grab a beverage, and it, you know, just depending on the time of day, you've got to keep in mind that it's noon somewhere. Um, you might want to grab yourself a warm beverage, like a coffee or a tea or you know, something that, you know, that, you know, that little last a while that requires you to sip it rather than gulp it. Yeah. The, the, you, whatever beverage you grab, whether it be an adult beverage or a warm beverage, make sure it's something sippable, something enjoyable, just kick back, relax Enjoy the ride. It's going to be fun. All right. First email. Actually, we're only going to do one email today because of all the stuff that we have to get to. i uh, got an email from Walter, and uh, where Walter is from Hanover, Maryland, and he has got a great question. He says, I just finished listening to Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's lecture on your April 30th program. The name of that lecture, by the way, is uh, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church fantastic lecture if you haven't heard it yet you need to hear it he says as i'm preaching expositorily through the bible no matter what the scriptures say i should preach law and gospel even though the context may not explicitly talk about it question mark i'm a little confused are you saying that i should preach the same thing every week that we are sinners but christ died for us and that his, by his blood, we can have forgiveness every week. <laughs> for example, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes about the use of the spiritual gifts. If I'm preaching that exegetically, I should somehow show that that teaches that Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. I'm having a hard time in a practical sense on how you preach that same thing every week. When maybe the context of the scripture might not uh, be leading to the meaning of that specific text to be law or gospel, from week to week, how would you preach that? Please help me understand, and thank you for your ministry, Walter. This is a fantastic question, and I'll tell you why it's a great question. Is because this is one that I've wrestled with. You know, you know, okay. I somebody showed it to me biblically, and I went, "All right, well, I'll give you the biblical argument." But still, you know, you know, if you're Preaching on, you know, the te- the text always dictates. Well, you got to keep this in mind. All right. First of all, we're going to look at First Corinthians chapters one and two. I'm going to read it in context because the three rules of biblical interpretation, as far as it, you know, which will prevent 99.9 percent of the problems from ever occurring in the first place, is if you read the Bible in context. Um, uh, I want to read something to you, and I, I, I just want you to consider for a moment what it is that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now, 1 Corinthians is written to the Corinthian church, okay? I mean, this is not written to a group of pagans, although they were behaving badly. Um, we, <laughs> By today's uh, nomenclature, we would say, well, the Corinthian church had slipped into uh, being carnal Christians. Well, it doesn't t- say that, but, you know, th- let's just say that... Uh, m- the things had, it, it's, a, it's a church that had gone wild. And, you know, we can understand it on some levels. I mean, granted, everyone there in that church is a sinner. And Corinth, if you're not aware of their um, history, uh, was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And uh, the reason why is because it was a major port city there in uh, Greece. And there's a tiny little isthmus there. Uh, They actually have uh, a canal running now that was started by none other than Nero that connects the Aegean Sea, and I forget the name of that uh, that other sea that they're connected in. So what they did in ancient times is that they would pull into port there, and they would literally uh, drag the uh, ships across the isthmus. And while that was going on, the sailors had uh, leave. And um, sailors being what sailors are and sailors doing what sailors do, uh, let's just say that um, uh, it's debauchery would kind of be the way of describing the things that occurred there in Corinth. In fact, um, if you wanted to have a religious experience with uh, the goddess Aphrodite, good news for you sailors there. Uh, they happened to have a temple uh, built to Aphrodite, and uh, she, lovely goddess that she was, um, you know, it, she was all about, <clears throat> you know, human mating rituals and things like that. Uh, there were uh, a temple um, that worked at the uh, Temple of Aphrodite, which was at the Acre-Corinth, you know, kind of the high point there in Corinth. So anyway, things kind of didn't go so well after Paul left Corinth, and they slipped into um, some pretty interesting practices. And as a result of it, Paul had to write them a corrective letter. Now, um, keep in mind, he's writing this to the church. Now, I'm going to read it in context. We're going to start at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. And we're going to read uh, through about halfway through chapter 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. Um, This is a corrective letter, and it doesn't even remotely come close to the negative, harsh tone that Paul took with the uh, Galatian churches who had added works to the gospel. Instead, they had slipped into moral failings, but we continue. So he says, "'Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus.'" So right off the bat, this, this uh, corrective letter written to a church who was experiencing, shall we say, moral shortcomings, he's drawing them back to Christ and the gospel. We continue. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that... All of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Apparently Paul suffered from old age too, just like the rest of us do eventually. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Instead, he sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied. Of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, If I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greek, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man or men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but many were not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Walter, that's the verse I want you to key in on. Paul here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 He says, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to continue reading in the context, though. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except for the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to stop there and just kind of point this out. Paul, reminding the Corinthian church before he's going to get into his corrective thing, With them and kind of one, you know, issue by issue take apart the things that they were doing wrong in their church, reminds them that while he was with them, he knew nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified. Uh, In a real way, we could say that Paul pretty much was a one trick pony, and the one thing he preached week after week, day after day, was Christ and him crucified. Now, I know it seems like a stretch. I know it seems like, wait a second. Don't people need to hear other things? The answer to the question is absolutely. You preach all of the counsel of God. You preach God's law and you preach it with all of its vigor. Don't try to dial in what, you know, what the law, what you want the law to accomplish. You preach the law. Anytime the scriptures tell you what you should do or shouldn't do, what you ought to do, what you can't do, that's law. Anytime the, the, the scriptures are admonishing you and giving you a divine imperative, that's the, the law speaking. And understand, every single time when you preach the law, and you do it lawfully, you will, not you, really it's the Holy Spirit doing it, will work in people terror, contrition of sins, remorse, guilt... And other things. And keep in mind, you know, and I've used this metaphor before. When you're preaching in any of the books of the Bible, it's, keep in mind, we we understand this when we do book reviews on major novels. For instance, the Lord of the Rings series. In the Lord of the Rings, you could start at the Fellowship of the Ring, right? And let's say that you're in that book. Now, it's a, it's a trilogy. you got The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. But let's say you're reading In the Fellowship of the Ring. And you, you're you reading the chapter about the attack of the ringwraiths uh, against the, uh, the hobbits on Mount Weathertop, right? Well, that story is, doesn't occur in isolation to the rest of the narrative. What were they doing on Weathertop? The overall plot of the entire trilogy is the destruction of the ring and the establishment of the kingdom, of the new king, right? And so every little substory within the the, the whole trilogy, the whole series, somehow moves the plot forward, somehow ties into the overall plot the overarching theme of the entire book in the same way in the exact same way you can be preaching in exodus you can be preaching in deuteronomy you can be preaching in leviticus you can be preaching in the proverbs or preaching through the psalms all of those there still are connected to the overarching plot of scripture. And the overarching story and the central message of scripture is that man fell by sinning and and rebelling against God and his word, and God is acting in order to save, rescue, redeem man and save him from his fallen state. You can get that from any passage of scripture. So the answer to the question is yes. Be like Paul and choose to know nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. And funny enough, train yourself to look for how whatever passage you're preaching on hooks in to that overarching. The total context, the big plot of the story, let me give you another passage of scripture, which I think it will help bear this out. if you look at luke twenty four the account of the uh, of the road to Emmaus um, you know, i I apologize, but sometimes we read the same stories here, but I love them okay um, we read in luke chapter twenty four starting at verse thirteen now that very day this is uh, Easter Sunday, the very first one. Uh, Two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you're walking? What are you talking about? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, "Well what things?" And they said, "Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, he was mighty indeed, and word before God and to the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things have happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in this morning, and they did not find his body, and they came back and said that they had seen a vision of angels, and the angels had said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but Jesus, they did not find and so Jesus said to them, "O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And immediately their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and how he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, listen, Jesus here in this passage opens up the scriptures and shows them from all of the Scriptures, everything that was written about Him. It is not difficult at all to find Jesus in all of the passages of Scripture. And so, Walter, let me encourage you. Believe it or not, not only can it be done, but it's really the right way to read the Scriptures. The Scriptures are really about christ now i'm going to give you now i understand this is all theory and your question is a little bit more nuts and bolts there is a nuts and bolts aspect to this and so what i would recommend that you're go- that you do i want you to visit two websites by lutheran pastors and i understand i it sounds like i'm being a party guy here but that in in reality If if I could find a reformed guy that did this as well as these as the two guys that I'm going to send you to their websites, I would refer you to him as well. Okay, and I'm not saying they don't exist. It's just I haven't run across them yet. And if you want to send me uh, links to some reformed guys who are excellent at preaching Christ and Him crucified from all of the texts of Scripture, I want those links because you know uh, I'm a Christian and I'm a Lutheran. Okay, I'm a Lutheran because I believe that the Lutheran confessions are a correct understanding of the scriptures, that they correctly tell us what sound doctrine is. That's why I'm a Lutheran. Okay, but I am not of the opinion that people are not saved outside of Lutheranism. That's ridiculous. So I just want to put that on the table. But there's two guys I want you to visit their website. The the first is a gentleman by the name of uh, Pastor Lassman. Okay. He preaches and teaches at Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. Okay, and I think his name is Ernie Lassman. Ernie is his first name. And you can find his website at MessiahSeattle.org. That's MessiahSeattle.org. And if you click on his sermon, there's a link there for his sermons. Now, he just recently had a vicar there at his congregation. His vicar sermons are not exactly the best examples of this. He's still in training. so, But one of the things you'll notice about Revan Lastman's sermons is he doesn't always preach on the gospel text. So he preaches on different texts on any given Sunday, uh, which he absolutely has the freedom to do. And I want, if you listen to his sermons, each one's only about 15 minutes long. Look at the variety of, of sermons that are available over you know a two, three year period. And listen carefully to what he does, and you'll see how he, regardless of what passage of Scripture he's preaching from, whether it be a gospel text, an epistle text, or an Old Testament text, that he still brings Christ in him crucified, teases it out of it. And it's not a stretch Anytime he does that. Another one who is really good at this is uh, the Reverend Bill Swirla. Bill Swirla's website is, uh, he's the pastor at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. And you can find his sermons at htlcms.org. That's htlcms.org. Again, over and again, he brings out Christ in him crucified. Sunday after Sunday and yes we need all Christians need to hear this Sunday after Sunday it this I think this falls under the category of what the Apostle Paul describes as abiding in Christ and staying connected to the head who is Christ all of the scriptures is they're really about him they really are and when we focus on Christ, abide in Christ, he says, what does he say? I am the vine and you are the branches. It is through that abiding in Christ, through focusing our faith on Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God and the kindness of God through Jesus Christ, that the genuine fruit that you really want to see in your congregation, that you want to see in the people who you are shepherding, that's when that really comes to light as true fruit and not somebody pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and engaging in self-righteous, you know, sanctification. No, it's through that abiding in Christ that we bear fruit, the type of fruit that keeps, that is in keeping with repentance. For the entire Christian life is really one of repentance. Now, Walter, I hope that answers your question. Feel free to email me back with any follow-up questions that you have. And, of course, I would love to get your feedback after you heard. Uh, t- took some time to listen to some of Pastor Swirla's sermons as well as Reverend Lassman's sermons. By the way, both of those pastors are, we feature regularly here on Pirate Christian Radio. Why? Because they are excellent, Christ-centered, cross-focused preaching from all of the different texts of Scripture. So I hope that answers your question. And with that, we are now up on our first break. I wonder why I get so long winded. Oh man, I, I must be a radio guy. All right, uh, I want to remind you that uh, that you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com if you want to send me a, an email and or would like me to ask me a question. That's email is really the best format for uh, for questions. Just want to let you know that. Or if you want to be my friend on Facebook, you can uh, just look me up, Chris uh, Chris Rosebro, I'm on Facebook. Or if you would like to get our secret subversive uh, microblogging tweets, you can follow me on Twitter. That's always loads of fun. In fact, what do we have today that uh, Jesus was hiding in a Kit Kat bar, apparently? Yeah, so <laughs> got to look that up. All right, we'll be right
1: back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your first doctrine now.
2: It's.
1: <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Kwando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor. Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're gonna learn these things. First off... In Rexquando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seed offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich Historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross, as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only twenty-five dollars plus four dollars shipping and handling. And all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy. Today. Listening to "Fighting for the Faith" and my favorite bumper music. <laughs> Coming out, of, I love this bumper music. Yep, makes me want to stand up and do a interpretive dance. No, I am kidding. <laughs> All right, want to remind you: "Fighting for the Faith" is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills, so that we can continue bringing you this important radio outreach. And uh, you can partner with us a couple of ways. You can visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our fine yellow donate buttons there at fightingforthefaith.com, which will take you to a screen which will allow you to make a secure online credit card gift to uh, uh, Fighting for the Faith. Or you can do it the traditional way. Traditional way works just as well. It just takes a little bit longer. And you have a paper trail, a really good paper trail. And uh, what you do is you make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, Walter, one more thing. You know, I I was going to read this later. I'm going to read it now. Um, (laughs) Just spending a lot of time in Scripture lately. Uh, the tr- Treasury of Daily Prayer, this is a brand new resource made available by Concordia Publishing House. You can find it at cph.org if you would like to get a copy of it. That's really uh, the easiest way. We hope to make it available in the Pirate Christian Radio store soon, but we're not quite there yet. Um, this is literally probably one of the best daily devotional resources I have ever run across. And the the, the guys there, whoever was on the team that put this thing out— It's amazing. It's just literally amazing. And each day, it is literally a joy to sit down with my family and open up the Treasury of Daily Prayer and read. It is just chock full of Scripture, good theology, catechesis, the whole nine yards, and uh, just great stuff. From a couple of days ago, uh, we're still in uh, the season of Easter, and I think, what are we, we're on, yeah, it's week four of the celebration of Easter and uh, the reading from the other day was from Luke chapter 9 uh, on the Transfiguration. And I want to read two things. I want to read the passage for you, and then I want to write to you what, uh, what they put in the Treasury Daily Prayer, which was a meditation on this passage from Cypril of Alexandria, one of the uh, ancient church fathers. So here is the story of the Transfiguration as recorded uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake uh, when they saw his glory and the and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter uh, said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, I don't know about you, but that whole Mount of Transfiguration event... Is a little bit bizarre. And what's with the listen to him thing? It, it reminds you of Jesus' baptism. Uh, but Cypril of Alexandria has a, an amazing thought on this, and it's in the Treasury of Daily Prayer. Here's what it says It says, Christ goes up onto the mountain, taking with him three chosen disciples. He is transformed to such a surpassing and godlike brightness that his garments glitter with rays of fire and seem to flash like lightning. Moses and Elijah stand at Jesus' side and speak with one another of the departure Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, the mystery of the dispensation in the flesh of his precious suffering on the cross. For it is true that the law of Moses and the words of the holy prophets foreshadowed the mystery of Christ by types and by shadows, painting it, so to speak, as in a picture. But the law and the prophets indicated that in due time Christ would appear in our likeness, and for the salvation and life of us all consent to suffer death on the tree. Moses and Elijah standing before Jesus and talking with one another is therefore a sort of representation. It excellently displays our Lord Jesus Christ as having the law And the prophets for his bodyguard as being the Lord of the law and the prophets and as being foreshadowed in them by those things that in mutual agreement they had proclaimed for the words of the prophets are not at variance with the teachings of the law. And this, I imagine, was what Moses, the most priestly and Elijah, the most distinguished of the prophets, were talking about with each other. Besides the wonderful sight of Christ's glory, something else was done that is useful and necessary for the confirmation of the disciples' faith in him, and not for the disciples only, but also for us. For a voice came from the cloud above as from God the Father, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Had it been God's will that they should follow the commandments of Moses, God would have said, I suppose, Obey Moses, keep the law. But this is not what God the Father said. In the presence of Moses and the prophets, God commands them rather to listen to Christ. The evangelist has clearly indicated that the truth should not be subverted by anyone who claims that the Father told them to listen to Moses and not to Christ. The Savior by saying, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. When God the Father commanded the holy apostles, from the cloud overhead saying, listen to him, Moses was far away. Elijah was no longer near. Christ was was there alone it was christ therefore that god commanded them to obey for christ is the end of the law and the prophets thus writes cipril of alexandria i think cipril understands what paul says said when he says i chose to know nothing among you except for christ and him crucified great meditation good stuff all right changing gears here <clears throat> fasten your seat belts because i don't know if you've noticed that just one of the things that happens here in fighting for the faith is that we have the uh, <clears throat> well we how do i put this mildly politely let's just say that we've witnessed some bizarre things or heard some bizarre things here on Fighting for the faith. And I've got to share this with you. Um, those of you who are seeking uh, emotional and inner healing and a breakthrough, a spiritual breakthrough, uh, the T- uh, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, uh, ground zero for the 1994 move of the Spirit, known as the um, Toronto Blessing. That would be the Holy Laughter Revival. The, you remember Rodney Howard Brown and the whole bubble bubble up from your belly, that kind of guy? Well, good news, if you're looking for deliverance and inner healing, it says um, uh, from their website, we read, If you're looking for an emotional or inner healing breakthroughs, a Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship Healing Week may be of interest to you. By the way, I'm just saying this as a you know this is a, a a public service here. A healing week offers you five sessions of intensive prayer ministry from Monday to Friday, one three-hour session per day, and you'll receive prayer from get this not one but two trained prayer ministers who will cover key foundational areas that are essential to the healing process. Healing Weeks bring spiritual breakthrough, transform marriages and ministries, and help individuals move forward into greater intimacy with God and a more deep and fruitful spiritual walk. And by the way, Healing Weeks only cost uh, $1,200 for a single person and at, at, at a bargain basement price of $2,000 per couple. Um, If you're not sure if uh, uh, Toronto Airport blessing, uh, Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship is your cup of tea. Here, let me play uh, uh, John Scotland. He's one of the people from uh, Toronto Christian Airport Fellowship. Uh, Here here he is. um, I think he's uh, talking about spiritual drunkenness. Hang on. (laughs)
2: From Luke chapter 1, some of you think that I don't give readings.
0: Now, if you could see what I could see here, this guy looks like he's uh, three sheets to the wind. But of course, I mean, this is, this is spiritual drunkenness, so, I mean, God uh, obviously um, is okay with this, right?
2: Well, I was brought up in the Baptist church... Isn't this pulpit good? And you know, I, I. Woohoo! I've been going through different stages of
3: drunkenness, and the stage I'm at at the moment is slouching.
0: Yeah. That's. By the way, this is actually from the uh, Toronto Christian Airport, uh, whatever.
3: I've gone through the hiccup stage. I've gone through the phase of heckling the preachers.
0: You know, I mean, I'm absolutely sure that the Toronto Christian Airport Fellowship would definitely, uh, or Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, definitely these people sound like they're more than qualified to help you with uh, your deep inner healing breakthrough uh, spiritual issues. And, you know, at $1,200 for a single person, I mean, that, I mean, what an absolute bargain that is. I got a kiss off George today.
2: (laughs) I told him he needs to get a shave.
0: (laughs) Believe it or not, this is actually the sermon from whatever the service
2: was. (laughs) Oh, okay now. Before we take off,
3: you know, before we go surfing, let's get the reading done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These people sound completely qualified. So just remember, Air Healing Week there, that that includes three hours of intensive prayer per day from two, not one, but two trained prayer ministers from the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. Only $1,200 for a single person and a bargain rate of $2,000 for a couple. Just, you know, public service announcement there that, you know, felt is important to pass along. All right, moving on to the news. This one is... Oh, man, I don't know what to make of this one. Well, you'll... I think you'll kind of get the point. Here, here. Uh, From the Christian Post, we read... Headline, United Methodist. The church is a verb, not a noun. Okay, now... Okay, so... uh, So United Methodist Churches are now apparently going to spend a lot of money um, arguing grammar with us. Um, The United Methodist Church is urging the world to rethink church through a new campaign that seeks to offer the church not as a building but as a movement of people empowered to transform the world. Boy, that just sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? You know, a movement of people to empower to transform the world. I thought that uh, the church was to go and preach, baptize, make disciples, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Nothing, I, I don't remember anything in either Matthew 28 or Luke 24 about transforming the world. Maybe I'm reading a different translation than they are. So we continue. So addressing the question, uh, what has God called the United Methodist Church to be in the 21st century? What What does the century have to do with anything? What, the, 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 Folks, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but... Isn't the church the same yesterday, today, tomorrow? It doesn't matter what century the church is in. We're still called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Christ has taught, and to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Now, have have any of you received any recent emails or memos from Jesus Christ um, telling us that uh, the Matthew twenty eight and Luke twenty four are no longer in effect, and that we're supposed to re- he he's rethunked what he wants the church to be doing. I, I haven't got that email or mem- if you've gotten that email or memo, would you forward it to me? I because I'm still under the impression that Matthew twenty eight and Luke twenty four are still in effect. You know, I but you know I don't want to be behind the times. I mean, can, that's a really embarrassing. Can you imagine? you know, going out there and acting like, you know, making, making disciples, preaching repentance of the forgiveness of sins when Jesus changed what we're supposed to be doing and you didn't get the memo. How embarrassing would that be? I mean, remember the movie Animal House and they had that marching band and, you know, they ended up going the wrong way and they were stuck in that alley and how ridiculous they looked. I mean, talk about silly. I mean, the last thing I want to do is be like that. Um, Okay, sorry. By the way, I, I've never really seen Animal House. I just read the cliff notes. <laughs> okay, so uh, the... Uh, you're coming back. Addressing the question, what has God called the United Methodist Church to be in the 21st century? The nearly 8 million member U.S. church, 12 million members worldwide, is launching more than uh, more than a $20 million ad campaign over the next four years to convey the message that the church is a verb and not a noun (laughs) they're gonna waste 20 million dollars arguing a point of grammar hang on a second here i'm I'm gonna pull out my computerized bible we're going to be looking for the word doing a word search in uh, my accordance software by the way uh, I know I get e- emails about this all the time. Um, I use a program called Accordance. Yes, I I know I'm a Macintosh guy. Now I do have Lebronics on the Macintosh, and they've recently made that available. And I still prefer for my Bible reading to use Accordance. It's it's a little less uh, complicated, and in fact, it's more powerful than I think the Lebronics is. But I use Lebronics for other things. Just just so you to let you know. Hang on a second here. We're gonna do a word search here. Okay, the word search I've typed in, I've typed in the word church, and I'm going to limit my search just down to the Gospels, okay? And, yeah, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus, um, let me read it to you in context, because you've got to remember our three rules here. Um, Let's see here. Now, um, uh, let me back this up. They're up in Caesarea Philippi, and, uh, and Jesus, all right, here we go. Okay, we read Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, hang on a second here. Now, okay, Calades, Petra, Talte, Petra, Okay, here we go. Okay, uh, found the Greek here. The Greek word here. By the way, it's ecclesia. Um, Eccles, uh, tain ecclesia. it happens to be a noun, feminine singular. Uh huh. Okay. And um, well, now we got a problem. It's, it's feminine singular. It's, it's an it's a noun. Uh. Hang on, let me I'm, I'm, I'm certain of this. The Ecclesion here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is saying that he's gonna build his church. And in fact, the, the Greek noun in this sentence is build. Hang on a second here. They're, they're gonna spend the United Methodist Church is gonna spend 20 million dollars in advertising over the next four years in order to convey the message that church is a verb and not a noun and yet the very first time it appears in scripture it's a noun what a bunch of morons they're gonna spend 20 million 20 million dollars arguing a point of grammar in which they're wrong hang on a second here let's let's let me expand out my uh, my search criteria here maybe i'm just searching too narrowly all right i'm going to lurk in the entire new testament all right so here we go uh, acts chapter 5 verse 11 it says and great fear came upon the whole church Ecclesia, again feminine singular accusative um that's a noun how about um, acts chapter 8 verse 1, and there rose on the day a great persecution against the church. And there it is again, that it's a noun. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, uh, but Saul was ravaging the church, Ecclesian, noun. Okay, 931. So the church uh, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, hang on a second, Acts chapter 9, no, that's also a noun. Um, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Um, Noun. Okay, we got a problem here. We have a liberal church body in the United States that's going to spend $20 million in advertising over the next four years on a point of grammar in which they're dead, dead wrong. So far, I haven't found any place in the scripture where the church, where the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church, is used as a verb. If you know of any place where in the scriptures where it says where the word church is a verb rather than a noun, would you email me? Because I think this is ridiculous. <sighs> you know, talk about it, missing the point. Twenty million dollars—they're going to spend twenty million dollars on this. Ugh, man, it, are you, and, and they're not even right. It's ridiculous. Just This is the kind of silly, stupid stuff that occurs nowadays in the name of Jesus Christ. $20 million. And, and the Greek word for church, it's never a verb. Always a noun. All right, we're up on our second break. Um, when we come back, we're going to... One of the stories we'll have to pick up tomorrow. I want to talk about uh, the... Uh, the Lion Chasers Manifesto. Uh, lion Chasers has to do with Mark uh, Batterson's uh, book uh, on a on a pit in a snowy day with a lion. Apparently, uh, on his blog, somebody has come up with what they call the Lion Chasers Manifesto, and I want to compare that to God's Word. And uh, and then you know, I'll tell you what we'll have to pick up Exodus tomorrow. But we're after we do the Lion Chasers. No, you know we'll do Exodus. We'll, we have time. We'll do Exodus today. So we come back, we'll do Mark Batterson, Exodus, and then the interview with Bob DeWay on the emergent church. You don't want to miss that. That will absolutely just rock your world. It's good stuff. And so we got some great programming ahead. Uh, if you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I will approve. I'm a friendly guy. Just don't abuse your privileges there. And um, if you want to get our subversive microblogging tweets, you can by following me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise bed in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. back you're listening to fighting for the faith warning now, this is the program your pastor may have warned you about told you don't listen to that Roseboro guy because as soon as you listen to him you're going to become dissatisfied with your church now if your pastor warned you not to listen to this program there's a reason why <laughs> it's because he ain't delivering the goods now that's true and what are the goods? The great the goods is the good news yeah, that I Jesus got, uh, Christ. On whoa, from, he's the uh, head teaching pastor. At hang on Taylor a second Fellowship here. There, in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. There we go. Sorry about that. <sighs> got ahead of myself there. My, I uh, <clears throat> have to unclick that. That's uh, that's just a slight preview of uh, my interview with uh, Bob Deway. But anyway, what are the goods? What's the goods? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Christ died. For your sins. And believe it or not, this is a message you need to hear day in and day out. This is not a message that's just for unbelievers. Au contraire, this is a message that's for you. You need to hear it. Anyway. So if uh, listening to this program could cause you to become dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ and says giving you life tips, challenging you to, uh, you know, anyway, we won't talk about that. Children could be listening right now, but you you get the idea. Anyway, one of the things that I really despise in Christianity (laughs) And yeah, that's kind of putting it lightly. Is uh, is this idea that we've gotten completely off track, and we somehow think that Christianity is all about us? Uh, and a prime example of something to this effect comes from a gentleman by the name of Mark Batterson, whom I've met. And by the way, Mark Batterson is one of the nicest guys that you'll ever meet. He's nice. He's smart. He's well spoken. Just I've heard him speak at at a, at a couple of conferences. And uh, but I'm gonna tell you, he's dead wrong in, in his focus. He's got two two books out there. One's called "In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day." That's right, "In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day." And what's that all about? Well, um, "In a Pit on a Lion with a Snowy Day" is all about you learning how to seize opportunities, defy the odds, face fears, overcome adversity, embrace uncertainty, take risks. And carpidium, that kind of thing. And uh, um, so today, on his well, yesterday on his blog, uh, Evo, evotional dot com is what it's called. Um, he the, he reposted the Lion Chasers Manifesto. It says it's been a long time since I've posted the Lion Chasers Manifesto, but I was inspired by a student at Northwest University who gave me a pair of custom de- designed shoes. With a fan manifesto written on them. Can you imagine that? A, a, a Northwestern University student is uh, so inspired by the Lion Chaser's manifesto, not the Word of God, but the Lion Chaser's manifesto, that they decided that they would make a pair of shoes out of them. Anyway, uh, so he, here's the manifesto, um, the, which is now emblazoned out of this custom made pair of shoes. Here we go. Are you ready? Quit living as if the purpose of your life is to arrive safely at death. Grab life by the mane. <laughs> Um, what if it has horns instead of a mane anyway set god-sized goals pursue god-ordained passions go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention intervention keep asking questions keep making mistakes keep seeking god stop pointing out problems to become part of the solution stop repeating the past and start creating the future stop playing it safe and start taking risks accumulate experiences consider the lilies enjoy the journey Find every excuse you can to celebrate everything that you can. Live like it's the first day and the last day of your life. And don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Criticize by creating. Worry less about what people think and more about what God thinks. Don't try to be who you're not. Be yourself. Laugh at yourself. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Quit running away and chase the lion. <laughs> Doesn't that just... Ugh, man, it just brings a tear to my eye. <clears throat> Not because it's true, because it's so ridiculously man-centered. Hold on a second. <clears throat> Gotta grab something off my printer. <clears throat> who Who is the um, <clears throat> the uh, Chase the lion manif- Lion Chasers Manifesto about? It's all about you, you, you. That's right. Grab life by the mane. Set God-sized goals. Go after that dream that's destined to fail. <sighs> Gotta rein people like this in. Folks, um, what's wrong with living the life that God has laid out for you? What's wrong with doing the vocation that God has given you? Whether that's being a trash collector, a mommy... A dad? A cubicle dweller? Living in a corporate maze? A gardener? A farmer? A pilot? What's wrong with all of that? Why do I have to pursue the lion? Which, by the way, is based on really bad exegetical work from a passage in the Old Testament. Um... Consider these passages as a counterpoint. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, our Lord Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up a cross. Wait a second. Think about that for a second. Um, What do crosses do? They kill people. Crosses kill people. Jesus is saying, come and deny yourself and uh, consider yourself to be a dead man walking. What would happen when people were carrying their crosses? They were pretty much mocked, ridiculed, scorned, and held up to shame and um, mistreated by the crowds. The poor guys, they were on their way to their deaths. So Jesus, the picture of the of the Christian life that Jesus paints isn't one about taking life by the mane, chasing after God-sized dreams, or anything like that. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is going to come with his angels in glory in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done or we read in first Thessalonians chapter 4 finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the lord jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and how you ought to please god just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, Uh, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, Uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we have told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing in all, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Does this sound? I mean, does this sound anything like um, the Lion Chasers Manifesto? Uh, stop playing it safe. Start taking risks. Accumulate experiences. Enjoy the journey. Find an ex, find every excuse you can to sell. And does it sound anything like that? No. How about this one? Romans chapter 12, Uh, Paul, after spending literally from chapters three all the way to 12, talking about nothing except for the gospel and forensic justification, then touches on sanctification. He says, therefore, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Wait a second here. Um, Set God-sized goals. Would a God-sized goal be equivalent to thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think i think so for by for by the grace given to me i say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that god has assigned him For as in one body we have many members, and many members uh, do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of it, having gifts. Yeah, this sounds nothing like like what we're reading in this Lion Chaser's Manifesto. Why? Because the Lion Chaser's Manifesto is man-centered. The Christian life is Christ-centered. It's all about Christ. Let me uh, find one more uh, passage here. Uh, huh? I just want to f- dig this one up real quick. Let's see here. Um, yeah, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Did I miss verse 1? Yeah, sorry about that. Listen to this. <laughs> Rather than setting God's size dream, try this one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That sounds a lot like that take up your cross and follow me, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is that is a good and acceptable and perfect will. Huh. Don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. Think with sober judgment. Right. Mike, my, my uh, opinion of the book uh, in a pit on a snowy day with a lion, and the whole lion chasers manifesto—it takes your eyes off Christ, one hundred percent takes your eyes off of Christ, puts it onto yourself, and it gets you all excited about thinking God-sized dreams for yourself. <laughs> um, I've personally got a problem with that because it doesn't sound anything like the sanctification described by christ and the apostles the self-sacrifice the denial of self listed in holy scripture not at all anyway we're going to switch gears one more time and then after this we're going to get into our interview with bob deway on the emergent church Okay, okay, uh, let's see. Where did we leave off? All right, things didn't go so well when, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, things didn't go so well at the first meeting with Pharaoh. We pick up uh, now at the end of uh, chapter six. Um. Yeah, well, actually, I think we read that. Hang on a second here. Did we get ahead? Uh, here we go. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, chapter 7, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I have commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Okay, does, does anyone have a problem with this plan? Okay, just for a second, okay, we're reading Exodus chapter 7 here. God has has given Moses a mission, an assignment, and he wants him to go and have a chat with Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And here's the caveat to it. Oh, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to listen to you. Any volunteers for this assignment now? This is crazy. Uh, but God has his purposes. So he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now I'm going to read this, uh, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, okay? Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Um, so basically guys sending, God is sending some old guys to have a chat with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's not going to listen because God's hardening his heart. So then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take it in your hand, your staff, and that you turn into a serpent, and you shall say to him, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this, uh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water uh, so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and he lifted up the staff, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water of the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now remember, in this story, as we're reading through it, at this point, this is a showdown between two gods. Not really for The God of Israel, he is the only true God. But Pharaoh thinks he's a God, and the people of Egypt think he's a God-king. And so what are they doing? Well, this is a battle between two gods. And at this point, it includes signs and wonders, and, and Pharaoh's magicians are able to conjure up similar tricks. And Pharaoh isn't even taking it to heart. And all I can say is, wow, That's amazing how hard his heart is. But keep this in mind. All of us by nature are born at war with God. We are born dead in trespasses and sin, and we are hostile to God, and we will not, cannot, and won't love, serve, and obey or fear God. What you're seeing Pharaoh do, that's what we all do by nature. It shows the depth of the wickedness of man's sin, even in the face of the most amazing, miraculous things. In the face of miracles such as the water of the Nile turning to blood, a snake, a a staff turning into a snake, or a man rising from the dead. Uh, People take no notice of these things. They're not interested in listening to or obeying. The one true God. And talking about that, by the way, not listening to the one true God, we're now going to switch gears for our last segment here at Fighting for the Faith. This is about an hour long. Um, this is, Earlier today, I recorded a, an interview that I did with Bob DeWay of Twin City Fellowships on the phone regarding his brand new book, which by the end of this program we should have this available on our website. The name of the book is "The Emergent Church: Undefining Christianity," written by Bob DeWay. You could, if you want to get a copy of it, you can by going to PirateChristianRadio.com. After this program, it'll be available. I think it's twelve ninety five. It's thirteen, you know, basically twelve ninety five plus four dollars shipping and handling, and we will send you out a copy of this book. You definitely want this book. You want to read this book, and you want to get it into the hands of anybody who is doing any serious communication or witnessing to apologize, doing apologetic work with anybody who's caught up in the emergent church. And by the way of reminding you, when I do interviews, um, it's, it's not your standard interview format. It's more like I'm doing a, you you get to listen in on a conversation. And so that's what this really is. So enjoy this conversation that I had earlier today with Bob DeWay on the emergent church. I got uh, Bob DeWay on the line from, he's the uh, head teaching pastor at Twin City Fellowship there in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, actually St. Louis Park, Minnesota, and uh, he's the author of Critical Issues Commentary, host of the Critical Issues Commentary radio program, which actually will begin airing here on uh, Pirate Christian Radio on Friday, and he's the author of the brand new, just-released book, The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Uh, Pastor DeWay, thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for having me. Got to tell you, I couldn't put this book down. This is a a, this book is a kind of a first that I've seen out there that really gets what's going on in the emergent church. And and as somebody who's been watching the emergent church, writing about the emergent church, dialoguing with people in the emergent church, it's it's always been very frustrating because uh, it's it's like trying to nail jello to the wall, and your book. Unlike anything else, seems to have done a fantastic job of what I call uh, uh, piercing the cloaking device of the Klingon warbird so we know how, uh, what to shoot at. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just, I absolutely think that everybody who is serious about uh, emergent church studies and how to defend the Christian faith in light of uh, what's going on in the emergent church really need to pick up your book and read it. So I, I, I thank you for your service to the body of Christ. Well, thank you. Can you take us a little bit through, take us through uh, how it is that you tracked down this this theory of yours as to what the Emergent Church is all about, and, and what was the aha moment with you as far as figuring out what it is that this thing is?
3: Okay. Um, in, you know, in my book, I mentioned some providential events that led me to be able to understand it. Um, providentially, I... St- Went back to seminary in the 90s to get a master's degree, uh-huh. and I was there when all things postmodern were showing up. And so that's the underlying theory, the whole idea of this postmodern outlook on life that I talk about in the book. But while there, they hired a new professor just about the last year I was there who ends up being fully into this emergent worldview and writes some of their books. His name is Lee Ron Schultz. Mm-hmm. And so when I was sitting under him, and then our associate pastor studied theology under him, he was always talking about God being the future, drawing everything into himself. Right. That was like his little one-sentence explanation of his worldview. And I knew that he had studied under Wolfhard Tonnenberg, a German theologian. Well, not you know, fast forward now, and the emergent thing comes out in you know this decade. And the first book I read was... A Generous Orthodoxy by Brian McLaren. Right. Well, as I'm reading this book and uh, preparing to write a CIC article on it, I looked at some of the things he was saying, and it started to strike me that it sounds an awful lot like this Ponenberg Schultz thing mm-hmm. that, that somehow God is, is the, the future and he's pulling things towards himself. But I couldn't totally put my finger on it. But that was the first step, okay? okay. Then. Uh, I was asked, I wrote an article about it, and I was asked to speak about it for Labrie Fellowship um, down in Rochester, Minnesota, and so I did, and I used Francis Schaeffer's writings to explain what some of the problems were. And then I was asked to debate Doug Paget. Right. Okay, so at, between the time I spoke at Labrie and the debate with Paget, I was exploring my theory that this stuff is coming from... A philosophical source that claims that the future is going to be like paradise, that there's no judgment. And all that was in my mind, and I believed that's what they believed, but I couldn't prove it yet. Mm-hmm. So when in January two thousand and six, the debate happened uh, with Doug Paget. I asked him directly. In fact, I formulated my entire part of the debate based on the idea that these guys believe what I think they do, and I wanted to see what kind of reaction I'd get from him. Right. Okay, so I asked him, is there a literal future judgment? Well, he shifted the question and evaded it. So I wouldn't let that one drop, so I asked him again about it. And finally, I just took a a different tack and said, okay, I'm going to assume he believes there isn't. So then I say, well, since you don't believe that there's a, a future judgment, how does judgment actually happen? And then his answer was, well, through things that happened in, in history. Mm-hmm. In other words, bad consequences. Well, you and I know, Chris, that doesn't work,
0: because look at the book of Job. Right, yeah, that, otherwise that was a God's judgment on him when it really didn't wasn't that at all.
3: <laughs> yeah, so if God's judgment happens in history through consequences, then God's not very, doing a very good job of judging.
0: Well, we should assume that God's hand is against the United States right now because of the downturn in our economy.
3: Well, yeah, you know, we'd have to be trying to be like pagans and figure out what God's doing just by events. I think, we should, no I, think,
0: I think we should throw uh, virgins into volcanoes again. That might help appease the gods.
3: Right. <laughs> you, if you don't have, know what God said, then you have to just fish around. Well, that confirmed to me, all right, that they really don't believe in a future judgment. Mm-hmm. And I also had a list of theologians that I thought they got their material from, including Jürgen Moltmann, uh, this Leron Schultz, Stanley Grenz, who's a famous theologian who promoted postmodern theology, and so on. And about that time, Tony, we had a meeting, me and a couple of other brothers, with tony jones and some people from a church he was working with mm-hmm. and if you don't know if your listeners don't know tony jones is the guy in charge of
0: the emergent village right i, I don't think he's the, he's uh, he's in the same capacity anymore but he's still heavily involved in the emergent village and uh he attends paget's church there in your neck of the woods the yep. solomon's porch
3: yep and he he's written books on uh, promoting this idea these ideas well at the meeting, they didn't. They weren't interested in another debate, which I thought was what the meeting was about, but Tony Jones and I, he's a nice guy, and he said, hey, if you want to understand Emergent Church, just ask me, I'll answer your questions. Well, so uh, I emailed him, and I asked about these uh, theologians, mm-hmm. and and he emailed me back and said, well, I'm studying under a disciple of Jürgen Moltmann's, and yes, Moltmann is Influential, and so is Stanley Grant, he's much admired. Most of us can't understand Leroy Schultz, mm-hmm. his stuff's hard to understand. And so I, then I knew for sure that I wasn't
0: wasting my time. Okay, so so basically, you know, your story is that you know you dug deep, asked questions, and had a theory. And your theory, it turned out to be true that these guys were being influenced by people like Grenz and Moltmann. Now, yeah. my, my listeners are not going to know who Jürgen Moltmann is, or at least a few—only a few of them really would. Who is Jürgen Moltmann, and and you know what philosophical camp is he in, and what, and what is his influence on uh, on the emergence?
3: He wrote a book. He's a German theologian who's one of his famous books. He's written several, but one that became well known was a. Excuse me. One that became well known is called A Theology of Hope that was published in 1965. Okay. And so, since the emergent crowd says that they have a theology of hope, I decided to start there. I I got a copy of his book. I found a used copy. It was republished in 91 with a new introduction in it, and I read it. In fact, in my book, I tell the story. I don't think I would have read it. I started to read it, and I thought, oh, no, this is nothing like reading German theologians.
0: Yeah, I've, I've picked it up several times, and I found that it cures insomnia. <laughs> yeah,
3: and I don't know, that I, but I needed to read it, or I couldn't write the book and prove my thesis. Right. And so providentially, I was trimming some trees on a ladder with a chainsaw, and got knocked, the, the branch came down, and knocked the ladder out from under me, and I broke my ankle.
0: So this was providential. You sure it wasn't God's judgment against you?
3: <laughs> well, maybe Padgett probably would have thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I was—I uh, I had a whole week where I had to stick my ankle up in the air because it was too swollen to even put a cast on it. Mm-hmm. So there I sit with nothing to do but read Jürgen Molt and nowhere to go. <laughs> And so I read that entire book, cover to cover, took notes on every page, deciphered all of his philosophical, esoteric language, and got to the bottom of where that came from. And he got his theology by taking certain Christian ideas and wedding them to the philosophy of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel.
0: Okay. Now, Hegel is a 19th century German philosopher, right okay
3: all right and he uh hegel is famous for what we call the hegelian synthesis mm-hmm. and he's famous for having inspired marx who put some of his ideas to work as far as his athe- atheistic uh, approach to uh, world history mm-hmm. and interesting and i quote this in my book in the in the introduction to the 1991 version of Moulton's book, he says that he was inspired to write this because he had read another German who was an atheist who wrote a book um, that explained a Marxist view of history.
0: Interesting. Now, I understand, Hege- Hegel is he's a utopian. You know, he, he he thinks that the history has a trajectory heading towards improvement rather than things falling apart.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And Hegel had a spiral view of history that thought things were spiraling upward and onward into a better way. In fact, his view of the fall in Genesis was that Adam and Eve fell up. Fell up? Fell up rather than down. Uh-huh. That it was just part of... Uh, the fall was part of human progress. Wow. And so Hegel, Hegel is kind of a eso, very esoteric. But students of philosophy say they have a hard time understanding him. Okay. But that's the, turned out to be the source. Uh, so Moltmann took Hegel's basic ideas, took a view of history that he got from Hegel, a view of the Bible that was from probably you know the German Higher Critical Analysis, mm-hmm. and came up with his own theology of hope. No. When I read that book, then I knew that I had the theological source for the
0: emergent church. Okay. Now, so this, this theology of hope, things moving forward in in a positive way has created some kind of an eschatology of hope. It, and you kind of begin your critique or your your un, your un, you know, decloaking of the uh, emergent church by looking at their eschatology. So with with Jürgen Moltmann and Hegel kind of working under the hood in the emergent church, you begin at the end, and uh, with a Hegelian trajectory of of human history, we're heading towards things getting better and better. Now this plays out in some kind of an eschatolo- eschatology of hope. That, you know, I'm constantly hearing uh, the emergent guys talking about, and can you unpack that for us? What what do they believe is, is, you know, if they don't believe that God's going to, as the Confessions say, that Christ will uh, return with glory to judge both the living and the dead, what's going to happen at the end of time, according to uh, these emergent leaders?
3: Well, they believe, uh, let me make an analogy, you already talked a little bit of a Star Wars analogy. Right. Right. Tony Jones, there's a book that I read right after I read Moltman. It's called uh, The Emergent Manifesto of Hope.
2: Yeah, I have it.
3: And it's a series of essays. And in there, a couple of the essay writers were praising Jurgen Moltman. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, you know, I wasn't just making this up. But in some of the introductory things, Tony Jones made the statement that the one thing they have in common, even though there's so much diversity within the emergent church, it almost makes it, dif- you know, defy defining it. They have in common an eschatology, and what Tony Jones says is that eschatology does not include some sort of a cataclysmic end to the cosmos in God's judgment. Okay. And then he says, we might as well get working with what God's trying to do with this world, because we're on a tractor beam of redemption. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, tractor so, beam of redemption Yeah, I, I, we're
3: on a tractor beam So if you can understand uh, When I've done seminars on this This thing helps people get it better than any other uh, device This analogy So you can imagine God being the mothership Right He sent out his tractor beam And he locked onto history with it And with his superior power He's pulling that whole thing towards himself Okay so what that ends up meaning in practice is that they say things like, well, just go out there and see what God's doing and join it.
0: Right, yeah, in fact, I'm looking at your, your footnotes with, regarding your uh, debate with Doug Paget, and uh, from his PowerPoint uh, presentation, he had 11 points. He says, the kingdom of kingdom of God focused and we want to join the kingdom of God wherever we find it.
3: <laughs> That's an interesting definition of the kingdom. I I tell uh, the people in our in my church when I'm talking about this, uh, the kingdom of God really doesn't have a zip code.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You can't go out here and say, "Oh, that, that must be the kingdom." Look at somebody's doing this, or something like this is happening. As, that's not a, a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the kingdom of God.
0: Right. And, and you know, what's funny is uh, there's debate as to whether or not Rob Bell is emergent. I'm convinced he's absolutely emergent. Oh, yeah. He, he recently uh, was uh, quoted in the Michigan uh, you know, Michigan Live newspaper uh, website that, uh, you know, uh, coming out against nuclear weapons, basically saying that they're an affront to God's sh- a dream of shalom for the world. And this sounds a lot like what Paget and these guys are talking about. It, yeah. This it's eschatology of hope.
3: Oh, yeah, actually, uh, yes, actually, Rob Bell's fully on board. And, and the, what reveals it that I quote later in my book is this DVD that he went on a speaking tour and just packed out these auditoriums.
0: Yeah, he's kind of a rock star that way.
3: Exactly. And his DVD, I got a, tra- a transcript of one of the persons of, of my volunteers transcribed it. And it's called... Everything is spiritual.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And and when you look at the DVD, he uses actually the same diagrams that you find in Ken Wilber. That's another guy we'll talk about later.
0: And that would be the theory of everything kind of guy?
3: Yeah. yeah. know, Ken Wilber, my ninth chapter is about right.
0: him. Right, right.
3: Well, he uh, espouses a view of reality on that DVD that is decidedly not a biblical worldview. And... He uses quantum physics and things that he assumes nobody knows about. Mm-hmm. Hey, that came up in the debate, by the way, talking about that. Right. But here, that, that's This was one of the funny parts of the debate. I, th- I think he was shocked. Because before I became a Christian, I studied chemical engineering at Iowa State University. <laughs> and I took differential calculus, and I actually studied quantum physics. Good I had night. a class on it. Uh-huh. And so I knew about... The theory about electrons and, and the differential calculus and the equations to try to describe where these electrons are.
0: So the, so the subparticle theories regarding whether or not uh, this, it, it, whether it's it a particle or a wave, that type of thing?
3: Yeah, so Bell takes all of that stuff that people, that the, the new age people, try to use to prove their uh, monistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, when Bell's talking about everything being spiritual, he's not really saying anything much different than that. Right. Everything is infused with God, and they try to use subatomic um, physics to prove it, that, well, when you get down to the subatomic levels, because I brought up the idea that A is
0: not non-A. The logical law of non-contradiction, yeah. Yeah,
3: A is not non-A. It's the only way we can distinguish categories. Right. So in a debate, Paget pulls this thing out that came from a, a... physicists from 20 years ago uh, that, well, at the subatomic level, the law of contradiction doesn't work. You don't have any categories. Things come into existence from nothing and this and that is the theory. So he pulls that one out in the debate. And and so I said, well, there's something wrong with your idea because when I studied physical chemistry and uh, quantum mechanics, we had to write differential equations to describe where the electrons were in orbit around the nucleus of an atom or a molecule and if non-contradiction doesn't work, you can't write an equation. Right. Because your equation, all the all the terms in the equation have to designate something different than the other terms. Exactly. Well, he should, that made him... I think he was shocked he didn't know that. So they actually studied it.
0: So they're basically... It's just, so they're trying to say that the entire universe exists in some kind of paradoxical contradiction going all the way down to the, uh, to the subatomic level?
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, the Bell was using all this stuff, so I had met a Christian physicist from Australia at a think tank, but when I one time out of California, and uh, Dr. Frank Stutman, who's uh, and he's uh, in charge of Labrie in Australia, so I took the transcript of Bell talking about subatomic physics mm-hmm. and sent it to him. And he, and, he, and he said it back with it like, he said, This guy doesn't know one thing about physics. This is wrong. About everything Bell says on a DVD is wrong. Wow. And, but he's counting on who's going to, who, how many people do you know that study quantum mechanics?
2: Uh, um, I don't know any.
3: Yeah, except <laughs> for me. Right.
2: <laughs>
3: and I, I, that was back in 1971, 70, 71. I, um, I asked Stupman about that. He said, Actually, we don't know any more now than we did then because. What we know is that once you get uh, any deeper into what makes atoms and molecules work, we have no way to observe, so we just can't know. So saying that we can't know is not the same as saying that A, and non-A don't exist.
0: Right. Okay, so let, let's talk then about this This uh, supposed... Par- I mean, w- w- right off the bat, I'm thinking it sounds like these guys are describing a panentheistic way of understanding the world rather than uh, a, a biblical, you know, monotheistic understanding of the omnipresence and, um, and you know, uh, uh, in power of God.
3: Yes. Uh, they're equivocating on terms... Of, you're absolutely right. They're theologians. I don't know that every single person who would think that they're emergent, would would know what these guys are thinking about and what they're saying, but I do. They're panentheistic. Okay. God is in everything.
0: Okay, that's what panentheism means. God is yes. in everything.
3: God is in everything. And see, when Bell is saying everything is spiritual, he's equivocating on the term spiritual and using it in a way that is not used in the Bible. Right. Okay, the Bible uses the term spiritual as as the person who knows Christ, you can see that in Romans 8. And a carnal is the person that doesn't know Christ, mm-hmm. who can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. But God doesn't use, or the Bible doesn't use the term spiritual to describe trees and rocks and, you know what I
0: mean? Right, well, the animists think that. Um, you know. Yeah. So, okay.
3: There's a lot of pagan thinking going on in this.
0: <laughs> uh, you're not making any friends by saying that, you know. That, these, but, I'm
3: sorry, that's just the way it is. <laughs> because, you know, in my later chapters, I take this basic idea that underlies their, their, their whole movement. Things are getting better. God is in the future. God is pulling us towards himself. Mm-hmm. Um, the processes of history are heading towards a paradise. Um, all of that. And then uh, I answered a question that was the question I had. The first time I read these writers, mm-hmm. the question was, the worldview they're describing to me is what Francis Schaefer wrote about when he talked about the line of despair. You can't know what the truth is. That should lead you to despair. So they, they agree we can't know propositional truth, so on. So why are they calling it hope when logically it should lead to despair? That's the question I set out to answer. and When I answered it, I found their eschatology. Okay. If you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter if God's drawing you on a tractor beam.
0: Right. And, and now let's talk about the, the mechanics of this tractor beam because it comes back to Hegel. It's this thesis, antithesis, synthesis idea, and there's ramifications as to what really is truth. Uh, if you understand what these guys are saying. I mean, the, basically, uh, Hegel uses the mechanics of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, where you have two opposite ideas, or maybe even contradictory ideas, that somehow human history keeps moving forward through this uh, this uh, synthesis of contradictory ideas. And you know, the example I gave the other day in my program is that we're all very familiar with the, the conservative-liberal uh, polarization within the church right now. And uh, the emergents are not interested in either being conservative or liberal, but trying to find a synthesis between the two positions. But Uh but in you know they think that that's how history will move forward. And once that new synthesized truth, you know, is really birthed or emerges, there'll be a new thesis and antithesis that comes about as a result of that. And then that's how we progress. The problem is is that. Uh, it, it under, if that understanding, there's no such thing. We don't really know what truth is because truth won't be revealed until the eschaton, and right now we just have a synthetic, uh, a synthetic truth that that we're working with for the moment.
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are some essays in that emergent manifesto that are very revealing. I cite them in my book. There's a guy say has an idea he calls orthoparadoxy. mm mm-hmm. As a Take off on the word orthodoxy, right? And his claim—I think this guy's name is Barry Taylor, but anyhow, his claim is this: Um, don't don't try to solve it. When you come to a contradiction, this is true, or the other thing is false, or vice versa, you've just come closer to the truth, and it's going to it's going to just show up. Don't choose one or the other.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Well. When I, one of the little devices I have in my book that deals with this is I, I go back and show that that's exactly what Satan was doing in the Garden of Eden. Right. Here's your first, there's where, it didn't really come from Hegel, it came from Satan. <laughs> because God says if, the, if you eat, you die. Right. And eating and dying is not the same at the same time and in the same relationship to not eating and not dying. Mm-hmm. So you have a contradiction. Eat and die? Not eat, not die. That's the contradiction. So Satan offers a synthetic alternative. You can become like God. huh. He denies what God says and offers a better movement of history towards Godhood and tells them the, that they can gain something that God selfishly is not allowing them to have. And so they, so they have a conversation, you know, what that means. Right. So let's talk about what God said. Can we really know what he said, and, and, and can we know what it means, and can we apply it to our lives? So all of the same questioning can be found right in Genesis, uh, the Genesis account.
0: Yeah, and so Satan's uh, ploy was basically to... Offer a synthetic alternative reality that, from you know, from before you take the leap, uh, looks like it would be progress. You're going to become godlike, but after the fact, it was that really improvement? No, I actually put him
3: under the curse because the whole thing was a lie. Right. But he was offering something that they wouldn't never never have considered. There's only this alternative or that one: mm-hmm. eat and die, not eat, not die. Right. He says, become like God.
0: Yeah, and
2: well, that's
3: going to be a better
0: category. Well, talking about God's Word here, we got to we got to circle back here because here at Fighting for the Faith, we are firm believers in sola scriptura and the idea that it's, you know, it's the Scripture alone that speaks authoritatively on these things. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed as I've been perusing uh, emergent websites over the years that th- this uh, this eschatology of hope really permeates. It seems to cross a lot of the different emergent distinctions because there is no unified doctrinal statement when it comes to the emergence, but it seems like this eschatology of hope is one of the things that a lot of them have in common. And uh, what I've noticed is is that uh, they they like studying scripture. Almost they, they'll study one passage of scripture in isolation to other passages, and uh, and not like to bring passages to bear. I think there's some pretty clear passages, especially if you look at the writings of you know of uh, the epistles of Peter, talking about the eschaton that the world will be destroyed, the uh-huh. elements will melt and uh, things of that nature. Uh, you know, what does God's Word tell us uh, definitively will happen at the end? Now, I'm not talking about rapture and things like that, but things that I think pe- you know, the premillennial and amillennial people can all, can all agree on.
3: Well, we, Christians throughout the ages believe that when Christ returns, there's going to be either salvation or judgment, depending on where you stand. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Right. And this judgment is not universally good for all people. So we've always believed that, and we've always believed that at some point God will destroy the world as we know it, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, because that's promised. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so those things that Christians believe in, it's in creeds and so on, and those are the very things that uh, the emergent says they don't believe. That's loathsome to them. Mm -hmm. They're they're green. They they love uh, the planet Earth, and they can't imagine why God would come and wipe it out in an act of judgment. Right. So they don't like it. Now, there's something that your listeners need to understand, and this is what creates almost an impossibility for some people trying to understand emergent. Traditional Christians, like you and me, think in categories, okay? Right. And we think that if the Bible addresses a topic and does so clearly, then we are obligated to believe what it says.
4: Right,
0: it's, it's authoritatively binding upon our beliefs.
3: Yes, and if, if there's some thing the Bible does address that we don't want to believe for some reason, we have to give some pretty good evidence that our reading is a valid reading of the, of the text.
2: Right.
4: And
3: we need to address all the texts that are pertinent to the topic we're trying to understand. Mm-hmm. That's that's how we do theology. That's all out the window.
0: Right, they, they, they openly attack systematic theol- theology. They attack
3: systematic theology, and they attack systematic reading of the Scripture.
0: Why did they do that?
3: Well, because they... uh, Let me tell you how they do it, and then I'll tell you why they do it. Okay. How they do it is by attacking the Enlightenment and rationality. Okay. They're saying that people like Chris and I are uh, stuck
0: in modernity. Right. Forget the fact that uh, if you understand 20th century Christian history, uh, Christians and modernists uh, had a fight to the death i know you know
3: <laughs> they read francis schaefer and you can who was a part of all of that and you'll see where that was going how they call us modernists okay and they they think that we're trapped by the enlightenment ideal that truth could be known using re, human reason okay and so they say that what happened to the church is that we were captured by the enlightenment project And we begin to study the Scriptures through the eyes of the Enlightenment, and we start using rationalistic uh, uh, techniques for studying and applying the Bible. Okay. Now, and I I studied under a professor that was claiming that sort of thing. Now, here's the problem with that. Um, They're, again, equivocating on terms, I think. Rationalism isn't the same as rational. Okay. Now... As Schaefer pointed out, rationalism means that uh, positing yourself to be in a closed system, in other words, God doesn't speak or hasn't spoken, you begin with yourself and your own observations, and you observe the world you're in, and then use rational process to build an understanding of, of reality.
0: Right, that's Descartes and foundationalism.
3: Yeah, and so it's a rational thing in the sense of including divine revelation as a category. Okay. Oh, okay, so Schaefer said, no, that God has spoken is fundamental to our Christian worldview, and it's not rationalistic to believe that God spoke, mm-hmm. nor is it rationalistic to believe that what God said can be known and understood and applied. So that's just part that, of human reason.
0: And that predates modernity, don't you think?
3: Oh garden of
0: eden <laughs> Wait a how far second. back do we have to go <laughs> don't get don't get logical on me here yeah, I... that's
3: like uh, paul uses logical categories which i you know i talk about this in one chapter of my book mm-hmm. these logical categories are how we can tell the difference between right and wrong truth and error and salvation versus judgment right so they're attacking the ability to know they attack the possibility that written languages can convey truth. They attack the possibility that people in one culture with a certain language and certain idioms really can be understood by anybody outside of that culture. And by attacking these things, and that if people like Stanley Grimms did so in a very sophisticated way uh, to create a postmodern theology, then... They, they, they've they escaped from what the Bible says because they just throw their hands up and say well, that was a different culture, a different place, different idioms. We don't know what they said.
0: You're right, and they're probably farther back in this whole, whole Hegelian synthesis, thesis, antithesis thing, so they had a different synthetic reality then than we have now.
3: Yeah, all they needed to know, and this is back to Jürgen Moltmann, and I, I cite him a lot in my first chapter, he's not looking for things like was Jesus truly raised from the dead in history, and if so... Are the Christian claims true? Mm-hmm. He'll talk about the cross all the time, but he never talks about uh, substitutionary atonement or anything like we think of. He, he looks at the cross as this you have two
4: antitheses. Mm-hmm. antithesis. if I can say that. Two yeah. opposites. Right. <laughs> okay,
3: you got two opposites. You got death and you got resurrection, and these two are antithetical. Right. Well, Rather than asking whether the resurrection was historical, which he spends chapters going around in circles with, he says this just gives us a view of history that death and life are going to synthesize into a better future.
0: Called resurrection.
3: Well, the resurrection is, is part of the antithesis, it's not the synthesis. Oh, man. So you, so he says the synthesis happens in the future, so Jesus is, the, the world's future is Jesus' future, and we don't know the meaning of death versus resurrection until it synthesizes at some future time. <laughs> I kid you not. That's what's in this guy's book.
0: Oh, man. And this is found in what passage of Scripture again? Well,
3: he he doesn't he cite so many Scriptures as he assumes people kind of know the Bible story.
2: Right. And so
3: he'll take something like the Exodus and apply the same process. The Exodus was, was the evil and, and the hope The people of God having hope, living in this evil world, and rather than specific events that can be proven to have happened and that God has spoken and therefore is binding what he says, he draws out of that a view of history that is hopeful.
0: Well, I tell you, you know, God's binding word, that that, that wouldn't have comforted uh, Aaron after Nadab and Abihu got torched by God for offering uh, unauthorized fire to God. (laughs) Well, see,
3: that's that's the convenient thing they have going in their postmodern theology. Uh huh. they don't have to be, uh, um, they, they don't have to have a systematic view of anything, they only use what passages are suitable. They just ignore, and they ignore, ignore, ignore. You take Stanley Grinz's and Frankie's book on postmodern theology and go to the index. Uh huh. Look for the topic judgment. It's not even there. It's never addressed.
0: Well, you'd have to look under the word hope.
3: <laughs> yeah, there is no judgment.
0: Right. Things
3: are just going to get better.
0: So it's, it's it's that Beatles song. I have to admit it's getting better, better all the time.
3: Yeah, and I think even another uh, John Lennon song would be pertinent. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine there's no, you know, so you, once you've destroyed the ability to know what's true in the real world,
0: mm-hmm.
3: what's left is to build an imaginary world.
0: Okay, the problem is is that, and I think you point this out, their, their synthetic reality uh, doesn't work in the real world, so there's some kind of a bifurcation that's going on in their thinking.
3: Absolutely, and that's where I use Schaefer because he talked about the upper lower story. Right. When once you get a theology or philosophy that's not based on what God has said or what we can know to be true in the real world we live in, but on some other something else, then you have to throw all of this into an upper story. He called it. And. Um, You divide up life so that in one realm we still act like human reason is valid because we have to tell the difference between food and poison.
0: Yeah, the law of non-contradiction comes into play there, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, absolutely it does. But then you throw it up in this imaginary mental world, you can imagine a world that's evolving into something better, and you can write wonderful uh, stories about it, you can write fiction about it, you can paint art about it. But as Schaefer said in his three... Fantastic books, Escape from Reason, and The God Who Was There, and He Is There, and He's Not Silent in that trilogy. You can't live it in the real world. Right. And I illustrate that in my book by, I don't know if you noticed my postmodern mushroom hunt.
4: Yep. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I use a lot of illustrations to show what would happen. I also had a postmodern. Uh, uh, Breaking and entering guy get caught by the law.
0: That's right. Yeah, they
3: can't they can't try him because they're in some other reality than he's
0: in. Right. You can't use the uh, the correspondence theory of truth to uh, (laughs) to 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 find me guilty. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Exactly. The 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 prosecutor prosecutor says, "Yeah, we've got this. We got your fingerprints. We've got the broken glass. You left some blood behind. We got get your DNA." Well, see, you're you're going
4: by the correspondence theory of truth. Right. I don't believe in that,
3: <laughs> so then I point out in my book, well, you could even have a system of civil justice if if what they say is true about the world.
0: Well, what I don't understand is if they don't they don't subscribe to the correspondence theory of truth and they've kind of created the synthetic spiritual reality and, and they they decry the ability of words to convey meaning. These guys sure do write a lot of books.
3: Well, there is the ultimate absurdity, and that's uh, even when I was studying there. That one professor, there was a theologian from Norway that came to speak to some of the what he thought were the brighter students, and so I got invited to that. And this guy's postmodern and carrying on. And at the end, I asked him about that. I said, uh, "Isn't this just self-stultifying? Uh, because you, there are no—I don't know how detailed we go here, but." You know, they talk about meta-narratives. Yeah. There's no big story that, that it, anybody can really know that covers all of reality. Mm-hmm. But then they're trying to create one by having a, a, a philosophy that tells us what the, what we're supposed to believe about the world.
0: Right, and they use words to convey it.
3: <laughs> yeah, they use words to convey it. So it's self-sultifying. I have a friend who uh, ministers with us as part of our church who took a class from the same guy that, that I ran into only some years later. And he, he Mike, took a bunch of classes from postmoderns, and there was a postmodern writer who created a hermeneutic. Okay? Okay. So this, this book on hermeneutics was required reading, and then after they read it, they had to write a paper describing the guy, what you know, describing the book and so on.
0: So a hermeneutic basically has to do with a, a method or a methodology for interpreting Scripture.
3: How do you know what the Bible says, and what method do you use to understand the meaning of the author?
0: Right. Historical gra- grammatical seems to be the one I favor, but that one just is too logical well, and modern. Not,
3: yeah, you're, you're modern. Postmodern doesn't believe in that. he reads this book. This, 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 is a, this is a riot. He reads the book, and the book is saying the reader determines the meaning of the of what he reads.
0: The reader determines the meaning of Scripture.
3: It, and that's, that is, by the way, the emergent understanding, if indeed they believe what Stanley Grimms writes in his book. Because that's his approach. In fact, that's Doug Paget's approach, too.
0: Isn't that the now, approach they of a lot the of reader, reader
3: is not an individual, but a group.
0: Isn't that the, uh, the, the method of a lot of evangelicals, too? What does this passage mean to you?
3: Yeah. And so, effectively, God has not spoken. Okay. okay well they say God is speaking now by the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit is telling the group what the Bible means and, and that meaning need have need not be linked to anything grammatical in a text nor to the author's intended meaning so anyhow this friend of mine takes the class reads the book reader determines the meaning and so then when he wrote his paper about the guy's book, Right he says, "Well, I read this guy's book, and it means to me that the authors of the scripture determine the meaning." <laughs> And, and his professor couldn't say anything because he was just using the guy's methodology on his own book.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. That's great. So he so he, he, the way he interpreted it was is that uh, the historical uh, grammatical method is is what's really the the thing.
2: Yeah, that's how
3: that's what he decided when he read that guy's book.
0: Oh, that's funny. That is hilarious. Because, uh,
3: how can you grade them based on what the man's book means? According to the man who wrote it,
0: when the the book is saying you can't even know what that is. Right now, is this one of the reasons why the emergent church is so big on creativity, on poetry, and artistic expressions? Is because it's somehow uh, it's it's the celebration of being unshackled from <laughs> propositional claims within the within the scriptures mm-hmm. and the unleashing of the creative within
3: descriptive of the way it is the, they don't like any when, and during the debate this came up and um, Doug Paget re- rebuked me for talking about propositional truth Right. he says why do you have to have adjectives added to truth why don't you just say truth and I said that, and then he took off on something well just truth is good enough plain old truth is good enough for me I don't need any adjectives well the reason he didn't want my adjectives is because he doesn't believe in propositional truth and his definition of truth is mystical.
0: Even though he uses propositional truth claims to claim that he doesn't believe in propositional truth.
3: Yeah, that's the big problem, is you can't live this, and ultimately you can't be consistent with it. Right. You can do so only in the realm of literature, film, and art. And that's really what romanticism ends up being. Right. You can imagine a world like John Lennon Lennon says, what do we imagine? In a sense, um, Chris, if you think about it, this whole postmodern thing is what our whole world's about right now. Right. In a lot of ways, I think our president's definition of hope is very similar to this emergent one.
0: Well, I remember reading uh, back before the election, I had read a, a piece from a couple years ago when uh, Obama was a senator and he had won the Senate seat there in you know in Illinois, and he had done a, a, a some religion gal from one of the papers in Chicago interviewed him, and in just in listening to his beliefs. The, he's a postmodern emergent. I, I think. Yes. I, I think he really truly fits into that category. That's
3: what. That's what I think too. I just one of the members of our church finished my book and was talking to me about it Sunday, and and he said uh, it's a great book, but boy, that ninth chapter was hard. Yeah. I said, well, it's hard because I'm trying to describe something that's based on unreality. Hmm. And uh, it's hard because his Wilbur is so. Uh, what he is but nevertheless he says well my conclusion is that this isn't just about that church he he says our president thinks the same way
0: right well i think i i think a good description of the emergence in this postmodern way of thinking is go back to lewis carroll's through the looking glass it's it's you know this strange land that uh, alice finds herself in you know these, these bizarre poems you know the you know the time has come my little friends to talk of other things of shoes and ships and ceiling wax and cabbages and kings and you just say wow that's great you know uh-huh. but it's it it doesn't correspond to reality because it is on purpose a synthetic reality that embraces uh, contradictory concepts and and it's all tied up in their this trajectory of hope for the planet, that things are going to get better, the law of entropy is going to reverse, Mm -hmm. um, which which explains why uh, McLaren spends so much time sounding like uh, a liberation theology Marxist in his book Everything uh, Everything Must Change. Right. Now, now, I have a question for you. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, going back to uh, Rob Bell's uh, idea that nuclear weapons are a front to God's shalom, our dream of shalom for the world, and uh, combine it with the uh, McLaren's concepts in his book from uh, Everything Must Change and, and the need for us to turn around the global suicide machine, as he calls it. Um, Is this utopian society uh, possible if if the planet hangs on to uh, the combustion engine and nuclear weapons? Or do we need to convince everybody to make the world a better place and get rid of the combustion engine and nuclear weapons before this uh, utopia can arrive?
3: Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's where they head with all this. Uh, Basically, human enterprise is the problem. Okay. Okay, you end up having humans being the problem with with planet Earth. And in this panentheistic worldview, which is shared by people like Al Gore, okay? Right. You have the idea that the Earth is a goddess, you know, the Gaia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The Earth is infused with the gods or God, whatever they want to say, and that uh, she uh, is our mother and that if she was left in balance she would be self-healing and that people using their rational ability god-given abilities to do industry and to build bridges and to build skyscrapers and to do what humans do are the, are attacking our mother we're attacking the goddess
2: okay okay
3: so humans doing normal human things become the uh, the, the problem and the evil and then sin is redefined, and McLaren does that in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, because he talks about this emergence theory that, that he gets from this philosopher, Ken Wilber, right. where God is already infused in the creation, and God is emerging as the creation is emerging. Well, it's like rings of the tree, and each one envelops everything before it. Right. Well, he said sin is anything that restrains or restricts or fights against the emergence. Or the emergence.
0: Okay. So, okay. So,
3: that, so that's sin, important. Yeah, so that's very important because see, that's how exactly how Al Gore defines sin. Okay. And so humans doing what we have to do to survive and multiply on the earth, like God told us to, are sinning. So sin becomes not a moral category of breaking God's law; it becomes a, a sin against the mother goddess. By just existing as humans, breathing the air, cooking our food, planting our fields, driving our cars, whatever we're doing now is defined as sin because now carbon dioxide that God created to be a natural part of our atmosphere has been defined as a pollutant and we're sinners just for being human,
0: okay, so that so does that mean just by the way we behave you said we're obstructing what God is emer- what's emerging
3: here yeah, the emergent green paradise that planet Earth is supposed to turn into we're obstructing that, and that's our sin
0: okay so that's really what sin is is that we become an obstruction to God's Emergence. God's dream for the world
3: yes, and that's terminology and I, I know you saw that I rebuked him for that yeah. God, I said, God doesn't dream; he decrees.
0: Right. So, my my question is: is just how powerful is this God of theirs that just by me existing and driving uh, an SUV, I'm capable of obstructing what he's trying to have emerge on the planet?
3: Well, there is a certain definite problem with their doctrine of God. I'll say that. You put your finger on it. Remember, I quoted Paget in his book that that we're co-recreators of the world
0: with yeah, God. Yeah, exactly. Weird terminology.
3: Yeah, so we're helping God recreate the world back into a paradise. Okay. And if we don't get with the plan, then we're the sinners. And so really, th- their idea the greatest sinners are people like
0: you and I. You know what's funny is is that this eschatology reminds me on just on one level of uh, something I was familiar with uh, by experience was the Latter Rain movement this concept that uh, we have to make the bride of Christ perfect before Christ will return oh. And I think it's, it's something similar here. We've got you know this this God who has this dream of shalom and peace for the world sitting there wringing his hands. And, and if we would just get rid of our evil capitalistic system and our combustion engines, then, then it would emerge, and uh, we, we are obstructing it right now.
3: Yeah, we have to get rid of even more now. We have to get rid of all the boundaries. Yeah. They hate boundaries. That's why they're undefined. Right. And so anything that this boundaries that God drew, they they see as an enemy. For instance, the boundaries around the nations. Doesn't the Bible say God drew them? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Because we have to do this world thing. We have to become the world, so it's just one big entity.
0: Oh, boy. Why do I feel like if, if this thing really gains speed and, and really picks up within the, the mainstream thinking of the global community that what's going to come about as a result of it is a global form of Marxist liberation uh, political systems?
3: Yeah, that's, that's where its natural inclination is to go because I quoted Moltmann saying that maybe the Marxist view is correct. We, we can't know now he said um so he wasn't against the marxist view he's just offering a christian one that maybe that one was better
0: a christian marxist view
3: <laughs> yeah a christian view it was basically basically the way marx used the hegelian synthesis in his thinking Molman's going to use the hegelian synthesis in his christian thinking
0: okay so we have an atheistic marxism and a christian marxism that pretty much still have the same mechanics
3: yeah, other than the Christian one says that there's a God involved in the process, this panentheistic God, whereas the Marxist one sees it from secular eyes as just the natural inclination of the processes of history.
0: Uh huh. Man, oh man. Um, it just. <laughs> The brain runs a little bit wild, I think, about the excesses and the abuses within the Marxist systems that we saw, especially in the 20th century in uh, in communist countries and, and those who got in the way of uh, what was emerging within the communist countries. Uh, add a religious, mystical spiritism to this thing, and you can justify putting somebody in jail or taking them off the planet uh, that's putting it politely if because they're getting in the way of what god is trying to have emerge in the world
3: yeah absolutely i, I, I the, what part of the problem with this postmodern neo romanticism i'd call it um is that it ignores what we should have learned during the 20th century
0: yeah you
3: know, because the marxist system in russia with stalin killed 25 million people
0: was, yeah, I mean that was just a good start for him, I'm sure. <laughs> well,
3: the, well the point is here here's why it doesn't let me this is the great discussion. Here's why it doesn't work. It goes back to the fall. Once you think that humans gonna emerge into Godhood, as Satan said, Right. Well you destroy the categories that God created in Genesis of, of humans being created in God's image, given moral law, and accountable to the God who gave the law. So then you have a view of the sanctity of human life because God created humans in His image So and told them to multiply on the earth. So if they do, that's not a sin.
2: You
3: mm-hmm. have God's moral law describing good and evil.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So you remove those categories and try to, and in this pan-entheistic New Age um, version, you blend the way the distinction between humans created in God's image and all the rest of the creation. Right, And everything becomes one. Well, you remove the moral categories, you remove the sacredness of human life as distinct from other forms of life, right. and human life becomes expendable. Yeah. And it, some some of these deep, in fact, I mentioned some emergent writers praising deep ecology, but some of that is scary.
0: Right. Because
3: they're, uh, they're suggesting that the, the only hope is for most of the humans to die, uh, it, some people.
0: Right. I've, I've read some eco-green sites that basically say that what we really need to do is thin the herd uh, and get the human population down to uh, a half a billion people worldwide.
3: Yes, that's what some are saying, because they are pagan. They don't have a biblical worldview. And they don't believe that the reason for humans to multiply through the nations of the world is that God is going to save people out of all those nations, and that they're going to gather ultimately in heaven, as we read Revelation, singing praises to the Lord who saved them, to the Lamb who was slain, and so on. Right. But their, their only hope is in this world for some sort of an ecological salvation, and human beings are the big problem because they just don't because of their rational abilities they, they can conquer the other species
0: <laughs> so we just got to solve so what we do is we basically throw all thinking into the into the modern waste bin uh, get people to think spiritually, bifurcate their thinking from you know from how they act and behave in the non-contradictory world of matter. Uh, put them into the spiritual state uh, with this hope and expectation that if we just get things right and get rid of this the theocapitalist suicide machine, that 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 the kingdom of God will become visible on earth and yep. paradise will be restored.
3: Yes, uh, Chris, you got it. I couldn't have said it better.
0: <laughs> Quick, I got. I'm glad I recorded that because I, I might have to refer back to it.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. You just gotta. We gotta escape from. That's why I use Schaefer so much in my book. Escape from reason. Right. Because if you escape from reason, you escape from accountability to the God who has spoken. hmm And when you escape from accountability, you can live whatever sort of world. Now, here's. Let's do a little history lesson here. Okay. In the 19th century, we had Romanticism. Right. In the 19th century, we had post millennialism uh-huh. in the church. Let me explain what that is. The idea that without Christ returning, we can set up some sort of a golden age of Christianity. Right. And Christianize the world. Uh huh. And so you had all of this romantic hope, theological hope, everything's going to get better, um, the processes of history are marching forward in some good direction. Mm-hmm. You had Hegel, all of this. And along comes World War I, the world, the war or was supposed to end all wars.
0: Right. You, they, 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 they had a hard time coming to grips with that, bat, with that war because it, it really threw a, a wrench into the workings of their things-are-getting-better society thing.
3: Yeah, the utopian thing went up in smoke. Yeah, And then you had the Great Depression. Right. Then you had World War Two.
0: Yeah, insult to injury.
3: And so by then, by the mid-20th century... This old, in fact, uh, excuse me, Francis Schaefer talked about what he called the death of romanticism, and I quote him in my book. Schaefer says, "If we start playing around with the terminology of synthesis,
0: mm-hmm.
3: we're going to lose the opportunity we have to present our Christian worldview." Because of
0: the death of Romanticism. Right. Well, at the death of Romanticism, you almost come up with... The, you get the cynical existentialism that comes on yep. you know, under the scene as right after World War II. Yep. Then
3: you have the existential, and it's uh, the bleak, uh, horror, you know, Camus.
0: Yeah, the only reason why uh, you're miserable today is because you didn't commit suicide yesterday.
3: Yes. And so that uh, now for whatever reason in the 21st century we're we're trying to redo the 19th century.
0: Okay, so this is so this is a, a resurgence of romantic categories thinking in utopian hopefulism. Exactly. All and, right. And so but
3: and, but it's propped up with this theology of Jurgen Moltmann and a philosophy of Ken Wilber that God is in everything. And if God's in everything, then it only makes sense that everything could actually get better. Right. You don't have to worry about categories like
0: sin and judgment anymore. No, because we can. We've jettisoned the Bible. We only, you know, we only read the portions that we want in isolation, uh, you know, and. De- we and they deconstruct it, everything's deconstructed,
3: yes, I have a chapter out there I hope we don't have too much fear and trepidation about with potential readers,
0: but, but no it's a, the book is a lot I maybe mean, it may be even easier than our conversation
3: yeah, we're having a little fun here going right. into the terminology, but um uh, we have abstracts in front of each chapter to explain the thesis, and then I have a chapter on uh that talks about de- uh this whole epistemology or study of how you know what you know right and i talk about deconstruction to a traditional christian it makes no sense at all right but i tell how they use it what it is demystify. In fact, what I'm trying to do is demystify this whole movement.
0: Right, and I, your book does a fantastic job, because what happens is is now we, as a result of your work and your scholarship, we have some categories to work with where uh, the emergence were not going to draw those categories and boundaries for us. You've done a fine job of doing that.
3: Well, I think, uh, I hope I've done so in such a way that they, if I indeed have described what they actually believe, My prediction is they won't offer much of a rebuttal.
0: No, that that would require them to define themselves even further. What I do find interesting, though, is I think there's a big difference between emergent leaders like McLaren, like Paget, like uh, Tony Jones, and even Rob Bell, and your basic grassroots evangelical Christian that's been flirting with these heady spiritual ideas that have been floated or, or injected into the Christian thinking. Uh, what I've noticed is, is that a lot of guys who like Bell and McLaren and stuff and people like that, they still hold to a concept of, of Christ is going to return in judgment. They just don't believe that uh, the earth is going to be destroyed. Instead, it's going to be recreated so what's happening is is that i don't think they they clearly see the eschatology of these guys and what's funny is in in talking with a couple of them since uh reading your book uh they're they're shocked that that um that mclaren and these guys have this eschatology of hope and that judgment is missing from it
3: yes um well i in, in that case that might be a great use of the book. I'm hoping this book gets on some of the Bible college and seminary campuses. Mm-hmm. Because young people are uh, drawn to this uh, uh, to a lot of things postmodern. Right. But I don't think they know the implications of it.
2: No. <laughs>
3: and so I've, my book will show you the implications. And it, it, I can see why uh, people would miss it. Because the first time I read A Generous Orthodoxy, I saw problems with it. And I, and, and I wrote an article on it. And But he was telling me right there all this stuff we're discussing, but I didn't know it because I didn't know the names.
0: Right. And what's funny is is that it, the, the, the way to read McLaren is to read his uh, uh, his endnotes and his footnotes. Yes. The, uh, it, the people don't realize that. Don't just look at the page. Go look at the things he's citing, because he, he spends a lot of time in his footnotes and endnotes doing commentary, really telling you what he thinks and believes.
3: Exactly. For example, this Ken Wilber, the subject of my last chapter, he told, in his book, he has a chapter saying that his emergence theory came from Ken Wilber. Yep. Well, when I read it, it didn't ring a bell because i never heard of Ken Wilber. Well, when I actually went and read Ken Wilber, who's, by the way, a Buddhist, he's not even a panentheist, he's a pantheist. Right. Um, and I started reading his esoteric, this thing, you want a headache, Multman was easy compared to Ken Wilber. Yeah. And he, because, let me tell your listeners why these guys create terms that sound like some fancy terminology that insiders know about Mm -hmm. the terms don't refer to excuse me the terms don't refer to any actual thing in the real world
0: right they're playful and contradictory and paradoxical yeah and uh there
3: are ideas that exist in ken Wilber's mind right they can't be tested for reality because we don't believe in a correspondence theory of truth let's tell your listeners what that means um The correspondence theory of truth simply says a statement is true if and only if it describes something as it is in the real world. Correct. And so if we say Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead on the third day and appeared to many witnesses... That statement is only true if indeed those things really happened in the real world.
0: Right. And and Paul himself, using the correspondence theory of truth, says, if he is not raised, then your faith is in vain and futile.
3: Exactly. So Paul was thinking like an Enlightenment rationalist as far as those guys are concerned.
0: Well, maybe he's actually the first modern guy out there. We just missed it.
3: Well, McLaren says Martin Luther was, but <laughs> maybe we go back to Paul. but. So anyhow, you read this Wilbur, and he's talk about memes and holons, and, and so then I had to dig out. out. Yeah. Maybe maybe if anybody reads my book, they can be thankful that they didn't have to read Wilbur.
0: No, I, I think you've done us all a favor there, too.
3: <laughs> That's just, you know, but I finally figured out what he's talking about, and I explained it in my book. And it's shocking. It's shocking that somebody that people think is an evangelical would would have a definition of sin and a theory of reality that comes from such a source
0: as that. Right. What's funny to me is that, you know, Christian orthodoxy has a very clear... Teaching, and you know, and you, you can almost boil it down to the five fundamentals that the fundamentalists hashed out against the moderns. Yep. You, you know, it, it, it's this idea of the inerrancy of scripture, of Christ uh, being God in human flesh, of his uh, vicarious death on the cross for our sins, his bodily rex- resurrection, and his coming again in glory. These things have been at the heart of Christianity from its inception. It's it's there for us in the apostolic writings, and we see in the writings of the early church fathers. They, they picked up right where the apostles leave off with this 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 Christianity. In fact, you have Irenaeus who writes this, these fantastic works against the Gnostics. Uh-huh. And all of them are using a correspondence theory of truth and, and underlying that is a belief that the, the scriptures were apostolic and authoritative because of what Christ said and they use it and quote it to refute error, to take thoughts captive and make of obedience to Christ uh-huh. and to uh, reject heresies. And uh, this emergent thing is basically coming along and, and you know there's no such thing as a heresy because there's no such thing as a propositional truth claim
3: yeah you're absolutely right that's a good analysis chris and i think um, you and i uh, under another excuse me you and i at another occasion i think on the phone we talking about a formal principle of theology yep sola scriptura what do you do with that
0: well, it's gone. <laughs> okay,
3: so you have no. And that's exactly where Francis Schaefer went because he said that the only hope to have a, a unified theory of knowledge and, and reality and belief is to start with the Reformation understanding of Scripture. Right. So that's where Schaefer wanted to go. God has spoken, and if he's spoken clearly, which he has, then we're bound to. To believe what God said, unless we want to rebel against Him and come under judgment.
0: Well, in that particular case, you know, understanding that by nature we are all born dead in trespasses and sins, and hostile to God, as uh, Paul writes in Romans eight. Um, it sounds to me like we have unregenerate men in the church theologizing.
3: Yeah, um, I'm afraid that's correct. I really am. I I noticed that some of the leaders, anyhow were people uh, like McLaren who grew up in the church and were taught certain things to be true, and he didn't like it. Yeah, They had a bad experience, or maybe they thought people had bad motives. They, they accuse us of that all the time. Yeah. Baggett says, for example, that if you get in the pulpit, open the Scripture, uh, proclaim the meaning of the Scripture to people, telling them that they're bound to it, You are abusing them. You are practicing command and control. Right. And so he has a book that shows somebody with a megaphone shouting at somebody and the person recoiling from it.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, they're making fun of Christian preaching.
0: Right. Well, I mean, even Rob Bell has that uh, Bullhorn Guy video as part of his Pneuma uh, series. You know, pretty much basically, you know, he's wanting to reach out and... Talk, talk some sense into that bullhorn guy who is out there telling people they're 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 heading to hell and they need to repent of their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. There's, there's right. something so, wrong with that. Yeah, they're
3: they're saying there's something wrong, I and mean, they have their social reasons because they they call it command and control. Of course, they're deconstructing that too. Right. But then, what does that do? But it guts the. the Paul said in Romans 10, he said, how will they know without a preacher? How mm-hmm. will they preach unless they're sin? Right. And, and so now we now we preach the gospel as being a binding and authoritative, as Christ Jesus himself commanded us to do in Matthew 28 and Luke 24, preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins. According to the emergent church leaders, we are doing an evil thing.
0: Right. And on top of it, it's, it's narrow, it's judgmental, it's, it's, it's modern, it, it, it yeah, and they, they want to uh, unbuckle themselves from it and sing kumbaya with the Buddhists at the uh, Seeds of Compassion events. Well,
3: that's where unfortunately I feel it's a disservice, by the way, to young people that to think that that's what they have to have mm-hmm. because it's not true. We have young people in our congregation that are. Just eating up as much Christian theology and Bible as they can get. They right. go out on the street and witness, and they tell people about the claims of the gospel. It isn't an age thing whether you're 20, because some of these emergent guys are frankly old. Right. It's it's whether it's a belief system that's the issue.
0: Yep. Well, uh, Pastor DeWay, I want to save some stuff for tomorrow's uh, interview with you. Tomorrow I want to walk through what uh, Padgett called your reductionism. I want to walk through some of that those that reductionist thinking of yours. Okay. And, th- and then tomorrow I'm also going to uh, read to you Rob Bell's uh, uh, recently published definition of the gospel from Christianity Today okay. and uh, get your feedback on it. So I want to save some stuff for tomorrow's interview. Okay. But again, thank you for your time. This Again, I think that a lot of our listeners are going to find this Valuable, And like you said, there's a lot of people who are looking for deep theology and are looking for people who are speaking in biblical categories and are passing along the Christian faith. And you're doing a fine job there in Minneapolis in, uh, at Twin City Fellowships. And uh, again, it's been wonderful being your cohort in crime. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know uh, again, uh, those who don't know, Bob and I had the uh, the privilege of actually meeting face to face with Rick Warren, and in a, in a in a very real way, speaking prophetically to him about the 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 problems that we hear from his preaching and his methods, and and how it's impacting the church.
3: Yeah, that was quite. A th- that was quite a thing. Um, it really was. So. Never forget it.
0: <laughs> I will never forget.
3: It. We walked away from that, and well, after that, Chris and I had to go. We kind of spent the evening deep breathing. like, "Okay, what
0: happened?" <laughs> right. Uh, there was a, there was a lot to kind of unpack after that thing. So yep. you know, and uh, I'm not sure if we had any impact.
3: <laughs> well, I know we didn't. Uh, I mean, uh, he he reminded me of Bill Clinton. Uh huh. And you know how how he's so good at being everybody's friend yeah he really wants to be your friend and if you just tell him things oh no this this and this and this and this and then he listens and then you just you can't
2: get anywhere
0: yeah it it, it we hit a, a wall a couple of times my favorite retort from him was well that's a very Lutheran way of looking at it <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, yeah, that we have. I know you were being Luther, and you were talking about guilt and the need for forgiveness.
0: Yeah, you know, because uh, yeah, that whole law gospel thing, I actually think it, it's valid. You know, I think I it's do biblical. Too.
3: I believe law gospel is absolutely valid. And uh, when you are just telling people, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. That's law. <laughs> that's all that is, is law. That's not offering them any gospel.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and there's some people some people who try to take that and apply it, and they end up becoming Pharisees. For me, I almost became suicidal and, and, and angry atheist. So, you know, you give me a steady uh, diet of nothing but law and no gospel, then I will absolutely dive into hopelessness and rebel on a, on a supreme order.
3: It's, it is it is hopeless, and I, I'm aghast at how much of us coming into even uh, some versions of evangelicalism that should know
0: better. Right. Well, I want to let our listeners know that if they want to get a copy of your new book, and I strongly recommend that they pick up a copy of it, it's uh, The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity by Bob DeWay, and you would uh, you can get a copy by going to piratechristianradio.com and clicking on the icon on our homepage. Uh, we have a cover a picture of the photograph of the cover on our homepage. And uh, it's $13 uh, and, uh, plus uh, $4 shipping and handling uh, because we have to pay to send this thing out. And, uh, again, well worth your time. And if you know anybody who is dabbling with the Emergent Church or looking for, uh, for a way to you know get something tangible that they can... Uh, Combat the emergent church. This is the book that they need to read, and so pick up copies for friends and hand them out like tracks. I mean, this is the book that they need. So, well, thank you. Well, thank you, Bob. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. I, again, we I have an agenda for tomorrow's program, okay. and uh, thank you for coming on. Oh, it was great being here. All right. Yep. See ya. All right. Th- thanks, Bob. All right, so there was my uh, interview number one with Bob DeWay. Again, it was like listening in on a conversation between old friends, and uh, and Bob is a fantastic guy. And I hope that wasn't too much of a nerd fest, boy. <laughs> and believe me, his book is far simpler to understand than I think that our conversation was. But again, definitely want to uh, visit piratechristianradio.com. You can do so now, and uh, we have the link up working so that if they, if you want to get a copy of that book you can also want to remind you fighting for the faith the, the it, your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing fighting for the faith to you to defend long gospel to defend uh, the the, the really sound biblical doctrine in the face of a of a church that's rebelled against sound biblical doctrine and biblical preaching in favor of being relevant and trying to attract numbers and and things like that. Um, you can support us by going to fightingforthefaith.com finding one of our friendly yellow buttons there that says donate you can click on the donate button and uh, you know in your gift you'll be able to make a credit card gift uh securely there online or if you'd like to uh, visit if you'd like to do it the traditional way you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers Indiana zip code 46038 tomorrow on the program we're definitely going to we're going to finish up our interview with Bob DeWay, and we're going to talk a little bit about Rob Bell and and we're going to do a little bit more nuts and bolts work on on uh, on how do you how do you combat the emergent church. And Bob has a great way in his book that he talks about there. We'll talk a little bit about that on the program tomorrow. So I uh, want to remind you, if you would like to email me at questions, you can at talkback at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Uh, if you would like to be my friend on Facebook, yes, I'm a friendly guy and I like having friends on Facebook. Uh, my name there is Chris Roseboro, And if you would like to receive our subversive microblog tweets from Twitter, yeah, that's what they are. You can, uh, Pirate Christian's the name there. Until tomorrow, God bless you.